What's the greatest enemy to any marriage? Impatience? Criticism? Boredom? Tim Keller argues that self-centeredness is the biggest problem in any marriage, and that all other problems come from that. Listen as Dr. Keller explores how the gospel frees us from selfishness to love, serve, and bear with our spouses. After you listen, we invite you to go online to gospelandlife.com and sign up for email updates. When you sign up, you'll receive our quarterly newsletter with articles about gospel-changed lives as well as other valuable gospel-centered resources. Subscribe today at gospelandlife.com. Feel soberness tonight because we have a very interesting church. It's it's really, as you some of you realize uh, that have been around for a while, it's it's. It's an interlocking chain-link fence of, of small churches, and there's grapevines. So a lot of you don't know Donna at all or Jerry, but uh, we prayed tonight because they were, they were evening Redeemerites, if there is such a thing, evening Redeemerites. And uh, we, uh, it was a lot of prayer for Donna, visited her in the hospital, and so it was, it's a shock for a young and uh, sweet spirit to, to pass on like that. Uh, some of you know, I guess once you break into your 30s, you begin to actually lose friends. It gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, tonight at the four o'clock service, Chris uh, Sperry sang a, a song that means a lot to me because it was a favorite song of a friend of mine who died when he was 31. A wonderful man of God with tremendous uh, future, two little children, and yet, you know, the, the non Christian world is a world without windows. It's a world that says we got time and space and everything out there, everything else is unimportant. It's, it's called secularization. It's called secularism. And the word secular means the now, the time and the space, the present. Secularism says I'm going to live today as if the now is all that matters. The problem is at times like this, especially when we confront death, we begin to realize that a world without windows is, is, is really a very, very difficult world to live in. The Christian world... It's a world with windows. That's the reason why one great Christian minister once, when he was very old, he, he said to somebody in an interview, he, was, he knew he was sick, and he said, listen, his name was Dwight Moody, by the way. He said, it won't be many uh, months now before you'll read in the newspapers that Dwight L. Moody is dead. Don't you believe it? <laughs> he, says, he says, I'm dead now compared to what I will be then. I'm a vegetable right now. My knowledge, my understanding, my level of being is, 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 is just, I'm a vegetable now compared to what I will be when you read that obituary. See, that's a world with windows. That's a world that realizes the here and now counts forever. It's extremely significant. It's more significant than in a world without windows. It's more important to live a life knowing that this is just the anteroom you know, you're going to live for zillions of years. You only got a few dozen here. It's a very important anteroom to your real life. That's a completely different approach to things. It's a world with windows. It makes you able not to give pat answers when somebody so young dies, but it gives you a framework in which you can ultimately and finally handle it after you cry a lot. Yeah, you have a framework, you have, an understand, you have a way of dealing with it, you have a way of understanding it and, and, and thinking about it. Now what we've been looking at in this series on marriage, I'm trying to give you a, a, a view of marriage with windows to it, and especially last week and this week, 
uh, you see it so clearly. And we want to continue. Last week, as we were looking, reading through the, uh, this passage in Ephesians, I'll read it here in a second. Uh, as we were looking through this passage, we uh, said, we've been looking at it for weeks. Last week we began talking about marriage as friendship. Marriage is spiritual friendship. Friendship with eternal dimensions. Uh, and I'd like to read again to you the passage, and then I'd like to continue and hopefully finish the subject of understanding marriage as friendship. We spent a couple weeks understanding marriage as commitment and marriage as ministry, and we've got more to go, but right now we're looking at the subject of marriage as friendship. But it's a cosmic friendship, a spiritual friendship, a, a friendship in a world with windows. Let's read the passage again until you know it very well. And, uh, and then we will continue to expound the subject of marriage as, as, a, as cosmic friendship. Look, verse 22, 21, chapter 5 of Ephesians. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. His body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. The basic thesis, started with last week, is that marriage basically is friendship. Put another way, Marriage is not basically romance garnished with friendship. It is basically friendship garnished with romance. It's not basically romance and attraction, and friendship is thrown in as a wonderful little, uh, you know, uh, uh, a wonderful little option, a wonderful little plus if you can get it. But rather, marriage, biblically, marriage is essentially friendship with romance garnishing and flavoring it. And so the way we put it last week is that if you're going to marry somebody, you should marry someone who is now or has the potential to be your very best friend. should not marry somebody who you'd realize could just, just would not be the sort of person that could understand you to the bottom. We talked about that last week. And we also introduced the idea of the structure of friendship, and that's what I want to show you. That's how I want to, uh, to try to move through the subject. The structure of friendship. Friendship is not just a feeling of affection. We said a friendship is a particular form of love. And friendship has this structure. There's three components to it, and we see it in this passage. The structure is, uh, friendship is deep oneness that comes from two people journeying toward a common horizon. It's deep oneness that comes from people journeying to a common horizon. See those three things? Uh, the oneness, number one, the walking together, the interacting, number two, and the, the common horizon or goal that you're going to. Now, we have a, you have the body illustration, 
that is something I haven't really talked about till tonight, and I, I need to bring it out now. If you look carefully, you will see that this entire passage is based on the idea of the husband and the wife being parts of a single body. It says the husband is the head and the wife is the body. It's the same illustration that Paul uses in describing the body of Christ, that we are all members of one another. And he says the way in which a husband and wife ought to deal with each other is the way in which you deal with your body. And so it says the two become one flesh, that's a, a one body, and the goal is to present the body perfect and without spot and blameless, without blemish or stain. And the way you get there is by nourishing and cherishing your body and washing your body. And the illustration is a fascinating one. You are not really separate from your body, and yet you can think of your body as something distinguishable in a way from you because you can act toward it. You're not separate, you're not distinct. What happens to your body happens to you. And yet at the same time, you can look at your body, you can work on your body, you can say it's, it's, it's got all sorts of flaws and all sorts of blemishes, it's, it's out of shape. Uh, it's, uh, it needs to be clothed differently, it needs to be washed differently, it needs to be, uh, uh, it needs to be conditioned differently, and you work at that body, and you, your, your goal is to present it in a, to be in a certain condition. The Bible says marriage is like that only. You see how the passage goes back and forth between how Christ relates to his body, which is us. And what's clear here is that it's the job of the husband and the wife to sanctify one another. The common horizon that two people in marriage have, the thing that really is the axis mundi, the, 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 the thing in which everything in the, in the marriage revolves around, is the fact that we both have a vision for what we can be in Christ, what the other one can be in Christ, and we're on our way to get there. Now, the way we put it last week, but I'm going to try now to uh, restate it, Last week we talked about the horizon. This week I want to restate the horizon and then talk about uh, what it means to nourish and cherish and wash your body. How do you get to that horizon? And then maybe a couple comments on the deep oneness that occurs if you are journeying together toward that horizon. See the three? The deep oneness that occurs if you're journeying together toward the horizon. The horizon, the way we put it last week is, is you get a vision of what the person is becoming. You get a, a vision of the glory self. You get a vision of a perfect, radiant being that God wants this person to be. You get excited about that, and you get committed to seeing that person developed. You see that, now this is not something, of course, that's uh, uh, you know, particular in, uh, to just marriage. This is the way all Christian friendships ought to be. This is friendship with windows. See, if you get to know any Christian well, Getting to know a Christian is a little bit sort of like trying to look for a mountain on a cloudy day. You watch and you watch and you see that the wind swirls and blows things around and at a certain point you can make out the peak and other times it's completely cloudy. And then all of a sudden the wind can just rip right through a cloud and you see the snow on the mountain. And you see the sun briefly shining on it and it takes your breath away and next thing you know back has come the fog. Getting to know a Christian is like that. Getting to know you is like that, and you getting to know somebody else is like that. You get a glimpse every so often of the gorgeous, radiant, perfect, the, the, the glory person, the glory self, that this person is becoming. You get a vision of what this person would be if this person was not shackled and fettered by his or her sins and faults. You get an idea of the, of the beauty of it and the glory of it. You catch glimpses at certain times and you get committed to it. And you say, the Spirit of God is working to become, make that person become that. 
And I want to be part of the synergism. I want to be part of the, the process. What it really means biblically to fall in love and to want to marry somebody is that you get a tremendous sense of that glory self, that real self. And you say, I'm committed to that. I want to be like a candlestick on which this candle is placed. I want to find through prayer and service and helping. I want the, I want the light, the radiant person who's locked inside here, I want the, the, the light of that to be evident. I want other people to see the beauty of this person. I want this person to grow and develop in that direction as fast as possible. Now, that, we said, is the way any Christian friendship should go. Do, do you do that? Or do you just try to find out whether this person also likes the same kind of music you like? And by the way, on top of that, they believe the Bible. Wow. Now look, <laughs> that's not a world without, that's, that's a world without windows. That's not. That is not a relationship that's constantly looking beyond time. Constantly saying, we want to be friends for a few billion years. And it's very hard for you to think about in New York when your friendships last eight months and then somebody moves. But that's the way all friendships should be, and in particular, that's the way marriage has got to be. It's got to be that kind of friendship. Now, what are the implications? That's the horizon. That's the horizon. Now, the implications of this are marvelous. Uh, I mentioned some of them before. I didn't mention others. If that's the horizon, if that's the thing that you're after, number one, first implication, it means that you will constantly find yourself falling in and out of like. Please don't say you've fallen out of love. Remember we talked what love is. Love is commitment to that glory person. Love is a commitment, but like is the feeling. And the fact is that you'll fall in and out of like with somebody that you are, uh, that you are in a relationship like this with. Why? Because you've really, in a sense, got the real self, the permanent self, and you've also got attitudes and personalities and traits and things like that that are gonna burn off in the light of God's glory over the year. They're not permanent, they're temporary. And therefore, there are going to be times in which you're looking at dross and you're mad about it. The process of marriage. Marriage is actually a furnace. There's sparks, and not the romantic kind. There's heat. Whenever you take a piece of metal ore that's got beautiful, pure metal inside it and also a lot of impurities that have to be burned off, what do you do with it? You put it through a furnace. And in the furnace, the dross goes away, and the pure, the real, the real metal stays. In marriage, two people come to understand and agree what that real glory self is and what the dross is. You understand it. You can point to it. And, and you can say to one another, this is the real you, this is the real me, this is the thing that we know that God wants me to be, and this is the dross, this has got to go, this is going to show up, this is going to crop up, we've got to work together against it. So of course there's going to be times where you fall out of like, because there's, there's, there's lots and lots of dross there. There's times in which you're trying to say that's dross, it's got to go, and the other person you know, wrestles and says, right. But the beautiful thing about this is that in a, uh, in a, in a normal marriage, not a Christian marriage, not, not a marriage that's got these eternal horizons that are the context and the framework for everything, in a normal marriage, when you come up against the imperfections which are there, in spades, in droves. When you come up against the warts and the imperfections, you don't think of it as dross. You just say, I wish I had somebody better. You come up against the imperfections and you, and you can imagine someone better. But yes, what's interesting is when you're in love, when two Christians are in love and they're thinking along these lines and they're married and they have these kinds of horizons, you also can envision somebody better, but the person you envision better is the person who you're married to. 
You see, there's a, you want perfection, but you want her or his perfection, the kind of perfection that only that person will ever become. Because you want them. You want the radiant them. You want the perfect them. You want the holy them. You don't want somebody else. Of course you're mad at them right now. You don't want somebody else. You want the them. And you know the only way you're going to get them is to stick with them. Because they're Christians, and you're a Christian. And the Bible says, Jesus, Paul says to Christians in Philippians, he says, hey, in Philippi, he says, I am convinced that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. How can he say that to an entire church? Does he know them? He's never even met them. He says, if you're a Christian, if you're a real Christian, I know the good work he began in you, he will bring to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. So you expect yourself to fall in and out of like. And yet there's a, the commitment grows, even when you hate the imperfection you see because it's dross and you want to get rid of it. And you also want a perfect person, but you want this perfect person. Another implication, and real brief, we mentioned it last week, but there's more of you than last week, so I ought to mention this. You have to beware of the normal cultural pattern. The way we usually do it, remember I said basically marriage biblically is friendship spiked with romance, not romance spiked with friendship. The way we ordinarily choose our spouse is we look for sexual attractiveness first and eliminate anybody that's not polished enough, not my body type, not attractive to me. We eliminate all those people, all the people that might be wonderful friends, all those people that we might have a wonderful marriage with. I mean, after all, the Bible says, you know, beauty is vain, charm is fleeting, and there's only so many faceless you can have, and in the end, you're going to look alike anyway. <laughs> so, what we, so what we tend to do is we say, let's eliminate all the people except the ones that I'm sexually attracted to, and who knows, maybe I can make some of these into friends instead of looking the other way around and saying, how can I find somebody who I'm attracted to their character, to the nobility, to their bearing, to their, to their balance, to their wisdom? And you see, frankly, there is a sexual attraction that comes from deep oneness with someone whose character you admire to the sky and who incredibly admires yours too. There is nothing sexier than that. It's a very different kind of sex. It's a very different kind of attractiveness, and it's, it's amazing how it is not completely independent, but it's semi-independent from the looks of the other person. And as the years go by, it gets deeper, even as your own looks fade. And now, after all, what the heck do you want? So be careful about the order. If it's really true that marriage is friendship spiked with uh, romance, not romance spiked with friendship, why start with sexual attractiveness first in, in doing your elimination process? Thirdly, and this is something that I only touched on last week, but I, my wife has told me I need to say it, and she's my friend, and she knows that I'm a chicken. <laughs> and that is, there are, there are people, the Bible says, that have a gift of singleness. 1 Corinthians 7. What that means is, if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll see that when Adam was created, he was lonely, because he was male. And God, what God has done when he created human beings, he divided, up, he divided up his attributes and his qualities into men and women. Men are different than women, and women are different than men, and therefore when Adam finds Eve, he feels a completion that can only happen in a friendship across the gender line. He feels a completion that only happens when he has a deep friendship with somebody of the other gender. Now, there are people, the Bible says, who have a particular gift that even though there's a loneliness, they, they can make it. They don't need that deep consolation that many of us absolutely have to have if we're going to be happy. 
So there's some people that have a gift of singleness. They don't need that. They don't have that deep need for completion in the same way. But what about the rest of us? And what about the rest of us who have that deep need, need the complement of deep friendship across the gender line, but don't have it because A, we just haven't found somebody to marry, or B, we're scared to death of marriage. There are some dangers, and that is the dangers are that you will try to get that kind of cross-gen, you're gonna to try to get that kind of, of completion without a marriage covenant. The Bible says the only safe place to have it is in a marriage covenant. We talked about that. A permanent and exclusive commitment of a man and a woman to one another to share their lives totally. Permanent, exclusive, legal binding. It's the only place that you can have this deep oneness. It's still not a safe, how do I say it? It's not a fail-safe thing, but the Bible says it's the only safety net that's strong enough in which to do this stripping, this vulnerability stuff that the marriage is supposed to be. You can still, as you know, many of you know, you can still get ripped apart in a marriage, but you certainly shouldn't try, even try it outside of that safety net of a binding covenant. And yet there's a danger of us trying to get that intimacy and trying to get that kind of uh, comfort and trying to get that completion without the marriage covenant. Why? Because we either nobody's willing to give it to us or because we're afraid of it ourselves. And what are some of the ways to do it? One is pretty obvious, and that is, even though this person is not a friend, I will have sex with them anyway. Because that, that you see, superficially, it, it feels, for the moment, that you're getting that completion. But that's another subject, another sermon, and we've talked about that before. The Bible says that's not the way. Ultimately, it's not the way to satisfy that at all. But you'll find yourself becoming lonelier when you use sex outside of a covenant. Second way to do it is when a man and a woman, for whatever reason, decide to have that deep oneness, that best friendship, and yet refuse to try to get romantic. Here is a person who's uh, of the opposite sex who is my very best friend. No one's close. And yet, either that person nor I, one or the other, or both of us, refuse to be romantically committed. We're not going to date. We're just going to have this deep friendship. Now, for a while that works, and I just suggest to you that eventually somebody gets, somebody, somebody gets killed. It could be the man, it could be the woman. That means one person says, this is great. They're not possessive, we're not uh, romantic, we're not dating, we're just good friends. And the other person is dying because that person feels married needs the covenant, needs the exclusive permanent. Is, uh, and so you, if you try to get that completion outside of the covenant, somebody gets killed. Sometimes it's the woman, sometimes it's the man. It can work either way. And there's another approach, and that is that two people of the same sex can try to get that deep kind of completion through, through a sexual friendship, which is homosexuality. Now, again, that's another subject, of course. But I can tell you this, the Bible says that you can't get that kind of completion, the completion we're talking about in marriage from somebody of the same sex. A friendship with somebody of the very same sex cannot complete you in the way that Eve was built to, create, to, to complete Adam. Some people can try to, they can, you know, you can deny that and say, it's not my experience and I'll, I'll be very happy to argue with you, but we can't do it here. All I'm suggesting is you must be careful about trying to get the kind of completion that happens through a friendship between the genders, which we need and we want, unless you have the gift of singleness, but we, we, we can't try to do an end run around marriage. If we don't have a marriage, if we don't have a marriage covenant, we've got, we've, basically we've got to grin and bear it. How? The real consolation is through good same-sex friendships. Not same-sex friendships that try to replace marriage 
but good same-sex friendships, do they do the job? Do they completely console the longing? You know they don't, but they're the consolation. They're the way that you're supposed to be tied it over until you can be married, unless you find that God gives you, which he very, in many cases does, gives you the ability to not need marriage and not even want marriage, and that's fine too. That can happen permanently or can happen for a season. Marriage is one of the most significant human relationships there is, but is also one of the most difficult and misunderstood. In The Meaning of Marriage, Tim and Kathy Keller offer biblical wisdom and insight that will help you understand God's vision for marriage. Whether you're single, considering marriage, or someone who's been married a long time, The Meaning of Marriage will help you face the complexities of commitment with the wisdom of God. The Meaning of Marriage is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the love of Christ with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com slash give. That's gospelandlife.com slash give. Lastly, the last implication of this idea that marriage is about two people committed to their glory selves, marching to the throne of God, wanting to present one another radiant and spotless before the throne. The last implication is here's how you can tell whether you've got a friendship on which you can base a marriage. A lot of people come and say, look, you know, we're attracted to each other, we've got a good friendship, that's great. But how do I know if this is the kind of relationship you've been talking about? How do I know if this is the kind of relationship that I really, really ought to have? Uh, and I'll tell you what it is. You can agree on what the real self is and what the dross is. That means that as you talk to one another, and in your, in your relationship, as you, as you spend time together, you find, and in let's take the man's point of view for a minute, you find that as you talk to this woman, not only does she have a terrific insight into who you really ought to be, who you can be, the glory self, the thing God wants you to be, the best about you, not only does she see it, but in some ways, she sees it to some degree better than you do. And as you speak to her, you find that you get a better idea about who you should be, and you get ignited about it. You get passionate for it. In other words, the bottom line of knowing whether this woman is a good enough friend to marry is, does she make you want to be holy? Does she give you, uh, does she give you a vision of what you could be in Christ that excites you so much that you want to get there? And do you find that you know it better and, and want it more by being with her? And the real test is, does it work backwards? In other words, if she's the one that helps you see it, and she's the one who knows you, your glory self, but you don't really have a very good, if you don't do a very good job of helping her with hers, then again, that's, that's, uh, that's detrimental. But if the, it's happening both ways, if the vice is truly versa, if you can agree on what that real self is, if you can agree on what is dross and what is, what is metal, you got the makings of a friendship on which to base a marriage with windows on eternity. Now, the question is, how do you get there? I've had a number of people come after and say, the problem with this is, I didn't get married with any of this in mind. And, uh, and the fact is that we're not, we're not friends. You know, I married him or I married her because, you know, we looked great together, we felt great together, we had a lot of fun, people said we, were, we made a great couple. Uh, the fact is that I, you know, I can go talk to my guy friends about things that I could never bring up to her. 
And so now, you know, I, so people have said, and vice versa, you know, I, I can go, the woman says, I can go to my girlfriends and talk about things that I couldn't imagine him ever understanding. But I guess I always thought that that was just the way it was. That's a non-Christian understanding of marriage. So what do you do? The answer is, right here in the scripture, there's no reason why you, you have to despair. What you decide is you decide, I'm going to make this person my friend. I'm going to work in that direction. And the Bible shows us that there's really two parts to that. There's, it's, it's going back to the body metaphor. You notice it says, on the one hand, look, it says, no, in the same way wives ought to love their, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one hated his own body, but feeds and cares for it, nourishes and cherishes it, it says in the authorized version. And up a little further, it says, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. To be a friend, to be friends, you've got to be willing to do the negative and the positive. The negative is cleansing your body. The positive is nourishing and cherishing it. Now think for a minute. You're not going to be friends unless you got both. I can only outline this now, and I'm going to, so we get ready to come before the Lord's table. These are very important, and some of you, if you've been to any of the marriages I've done lately, you'll recognize them as seminal parts in any talk I give when I, when I perform a wedding. On the one hand, think of what it means to clean your body. It's, it's a private thing. You know, in other words, you have to work on your teeth. You have to, you, when you excrete, you wipe yourself. You, you clean your fingernails. You, uh, you, you deal with the problems of your skin. You, uh, you know, you work on, you, you shower and you bathe. And the fact is, this is the most private thing that you do, is to keep your body clean. The Bible says, when you get married, your spouse has that kind of access to you, to the most private part of your life. And that means that your spouse will see and take part in cleaning the dirt. To put it in Star Trek terms, your spouse goes where no one, no man has gone before. <laughs> now, if you hate that, and if you resent that, you don't understand marriage and this person will never be your friend. One of the ways in which this person cleanses you is simply by him or her being there. Look, in the past, are you a moody person? You're prone to mood swings? Are you an indecisive person? Are you a scaredy cat person about certain things? Are you a kind of a abrupt and critical person? Hmm? Are you an impatient person? You, you could always, in a sense, clean yourself in private. If you're really mad, if you're really scared, if you're really grumpy, if you're really irritable, if you're really moody, you could pretty much hide it from people. But now you're constantly humiliated. <laughs> you're humiliated because these things are things that your spouse sees. You're excreting spiritually all over the place. <laughs> your spouse sees that. And, and, uh, and now your spouse says something about it. In other words, your moods your indecision, your fears create problems for your spouse too. You're moody together. You're indecisive together. You're scared together. What this does on the one hand, it's so cleansing just to have somebody there just seeing it because for the first time in your life you can't live in denial anymore. And every mental health uh, you know, counselor will tell you that's the worst thing for you. If you live in denial, you can't do a thing about it. And on the other hand, the spouse can say things to you and help you with it if you're willing to realize that it's the nature of marriage that your spouse has access to cleansing you. 
But on the other hand, you've got to be so gentle. You all know what it's like to cleanse. You, you, you're so gentle with yourself. Can you imagine somebody else flossing your teeth? Well, you, you know, that would be pretty scary. Can you imagine somebody else cutting your nails? Can you imagine somebody else doing those things? The reason you're scared is because it's very hard for someone else to be sensitive enough. If you're married, it's your job to do those things. It's your job to do those things. You go in where no one has ever gone before. But how do you do it? You do it oh so gently. To deal with one another's sins, to cleanse one another from sin, to point out sins, to admit sins, to be accountable for sins. If that isn't happening, you're not friends. And you certainly don't have the horizon in mind. If you, cannot, if you have a relationship in which you just have to stay away from each other because you're too testy, that means you're not committed to this understanding of marriage and you can never be friends. But then there's the positive side. Here's where we have to conclude, but I want to read you something. The positive side is that it says you nourish and cherish your body. You find out what really builds it up and nourishes it and makes it happy and makes it strong. At this point, you really live out with your spouse the actual salvation of Jesus. Because what Jesus does is he comes to you and he says, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. Let me read you something. A lot of you may have heard this because I've, I've brought it up in other, uh, another situation, especially at weddings. This is a paper written by someone who we went to seminary with long ago. Let me just read it and then we're done. Marriage is recreational. In the context of marriage, one encounters the possible redemption of the full life the retrospective healing of your personal history. The thorough conversion of one's biography is a divine work begun in this life, and it would seem that God has invested the marriage relationship with sufficient emotional power to challenge the authority of accumulated biographical verdicts and to thereby redeem the past. Now, you know what he's saying? You may have heard me say this before. When you get married to somebody, yes, the other person has the right to cleanse you and point out your faults, but here's also what happens. When you get married to someone, you know how that place in the Bible it says, if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts? You know what it says that? There is a very important analogy. When God invented marriage with this power, that if your spouse tells you you're gorgeous, you feel gorgeous, no matter what anybody else says, no matter what the culture says. If your spouse tells you, I don't care what your father and mother said, I don't care what your teacher said, you are great. I don't care what they said, you are you are someone I admire. That, well, this is what the paper says, and I think this is true. What the passage is saying is that you have massive ability to completely reprogram the self-appreciation of your spouse. Your word will completely over, has the power to overturn all the verdicts that have ever been passed on your spouse. Your spouse believes about himself or herself whatever he's been told over the years. Hundreds and thousands of people have told him what he's like. And now you have got the power to completely turn that over. If your hearts are condemned, condemn you, your spouse is greater than your heart. And that means if everybody in the world calls you ugly and your spouse says you're beautiful, you'll feel beautiful. And it also means that if everybody in the whole world calls you beautiful and your spouse calls you ugly, you'll feel ugly. You've got that ability to redeem. You nourish and cherish one another. You find out what is good in the other and you call it out. You affirm. And the only reason we know that, how this works is because Jesus Christ himself has done it for us. Jesus is the friend. 
Jesus is the one who it's, of whom it said, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench till he brings forth judgment to victory. What that means is that he is a God who will, he is a person who will come into your life and bring you forth to victory. But in the meantime, if you are so bruised, you're like a bruised reed, he will treat you so gently you won't break off. If you are so dim that you're like a smoking flax, like a, like a, a candle that has basically gone out, but there's just a glimmer of a, of, a, of a flame there, he won't quench you. That's a friend. There's someone who will bring you to victory, who is committed to you, who won't let you go, who will tell you about your faults, but is so completely committed to you, and who continually says to you, I love you, I care for you. He's greater than your hearts. He overcomes everything that anyone else has ever said of you. And in the marriage relationship, you're living that out. My dear friends, dear friends, have a marriage. Prepare yourself for a marriage if you're not married. Get yourself a marriage if you are married with windows on eternity. Let's pray. Father, as we go to the Lord's table, as we uh, partake of the bread and the cup, we pray that we'll remember your friendship, Jesus Christ, how you died for us, how you love us, how you are committed to us, how you are consistent with us, how you're vulnerable to us, how you communicate to us, so we might become the kind of friends that can build other people up toward the throne and prepare us to be the kind of husbands and wives that will also bring you glory and joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Dr. Keller. If you were encouraged by this podcast, we invite you to consider becoming a Gospel and Life monthly partner. Your partnership helps more people access resources like this podcast. Just visit gospelandlife.com partner to learn more. This month's sermons were recorded in 1991. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017 while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.